You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Uh, I want to invite you to join me in something that we've kind of set, a, I guess, as a, a, a precedent for the last several years is that we would open the Bible in the summers and read through the Psalms. And so if you would join me in the 44th Psalm. Now, if you don't have a Bible or a smartphone or an app, it'll get you that. Uh, You'll see a paperback version of the Bible in the tray of the chair in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, do me a favor, make that a gift. Uh, Let that be our gift to you. And and if you know someone else who doesn't have a Bible, let that be our even gift to them. You can't steal it. We're we're giving away uh, God's Word. And so we regularly open the Bible. And as we do through the summers, uh, typically, there's a a few reasons why. And I'll I'll give you kind of a a picture of where we want to go even today uh, in, in the Psalms and repeat maybe even what you've already heard. That is, we believe that God speaks through His Word. Something amazing happens that when we open the Bible, kind of one of our dead heroes, we, we paraphrase to say that the Bible actually opens us, that we begin to expose the Word we use as exposit, that which is in the Word, and, and something powerful happens. The Holy Spirit actually exposes things about us. And so we open it actively, powerfully, knowing that the Creator of the universe might speak to us through it. And so, so in that sense, the, the Psalms are the hymn book of the Bible. They're the most quoted of the Old Testament books in the New Testament, including one we'll see today in the fourth, excuse me, in the 44th Psalm. Whereas that, uh, think of the, the New Testament community, the first Christians, the, the only hymns or songs that they would have known uh, at the beginning of this first century church would have been these Psalms. And you see Jesus and, and even other of the apostles quoting them. And so this is for us kind of a, a, a recollection of, of all of the thoughts, all of the, the emotions, the experiences of God's people throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. As such, you've heard us say over the last several weeks, there's not a single human experience that isn't expressed in some way in the Psalms. In fact, the majority of the Psalms are lament, that is crying out to God, as we'll see even today, in distress for help. God, help me. I do not like this thing, which, which might shock you. You might have, I know, I know for many of you, if you have kind of an interaction with, with Christianity or, or the church and it was negative, it was probably kind of like a happy-go-lucky at all costs, right? Like people is like in denial about things that are going on in the world. People in denial about real injustice, real mistreatment. And I want you to know that when they were doing that, they weren't speaking in this sense for the scripture the scripture regularly gives voice to the feelings of distress and awfulness that we experience in the world in fact to experience distress in the world is to know that you're experiencing it rightly because after all if you look at what's broken if you look at what's destroyed if you look at injustice oppression if you look at the unfairness that happens to us and around the world and you think that's okay then you aren't reflecting rightly the heart of God in fact the psalms exist here to show us that We serve and love a God who intends to redeem and restore all that's broken, and the Psalms give us the language to do that. So secondly, uh, one of the reasons we do this is we, we let the Psalms teach us how to talk. That is, we talk about how we talk. We, we think about words and how we're formed by them. Now, now this is going to be a silly kind of example, but when I was a very young person, uh, maybe older than I would want to admit, uh, I, can hear, I can hear my mother saying to me, as someone did something nice for me, my mother would say, now Jonathan, what do we say? And, and in that moment, she was, my mom, 
in grace and kindness, teaching me how to talk, right? She was talking about how we talk. In some sense, the the Bible here gives us the heart of the Father towards His children and helps us talk about how we talk. That is through these poems, through this literature, these songs that were rehearsed, they teach us, they, they do powerful things. In fact, if you look at Psalm, the 44th Psalm, it's, it's called a masculine. It says, to the choir master. It's one of the first of these hymns or songs that a group of people would rehearse. And a masculine is a more didactic or teaching psalm. Because after all, some things are best learned through poetry, right? Some things are best learned through a song. And I, I, I say this every time uh, I get the chance to, but if you learn the ABCs in this room and you didn't learn it through a song, I would love to meet you. I want to hear about like, like, if, like no, my family, we don't sing. A, B, C, D, right? Like we march to the A, right? As opposed to what? It's a sing-songy kind of a tune. A, B, do you get the idea? And, and in that sense, it's, it's a didactic, it's a teaching song. It, it teaches us something because some things are best taught through poetry, through rhyme, through meter, and through song. And so in this sense, the Psalms are the playlist of the church. They're the hit list. We say it's the, the songs of the summer, right? Uh, the, the song that's, that, that's on the verge of annoying and catchy. You know what I'm talking about. That, that's what makes a poppy song good, right? It's like, I can't tell if I hate this song or I love it. It is so annoying that it's catchy. It's so catchy that it's annoying. You get the idea? And for the people who have been changed by an encounter with God, this is the hit list. These are the things we hum. These are the things, as it were, that I would commend to you even this week. Put Psalm 44 on repeat. Put it on repeat. Now, as the psalmist here, for a couple of minutes, we'll read through it. I'll give you a guide. First, he's going to recount with faith things that we've sung about just even a moment ago, about the faithfulness of God, his goodness towards them. And then he's going to turn to cry out to God for deliverance from something that's happened to them that is unfair. So, to the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days and the days of old. You with your own hands drove out the nations, but them, that is, the fathers, you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your right arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes, through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes, and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us, and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. 
You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All the day long, my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart is not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. We believe this is God's word to us. Have you ever been really confused? Can you think of a time in your life where you were bewildered? It might even be fair to ask, are there any things right now that you're confused about? Are there any confusing decisions in front of you? What do I do? Do I go this way or do I go that? Have you ever had a moment in your life where you just did not know what to do? You did not know where to go. You did not know where to turn. And you did not, like the psalmist, know why things were the way that they were. Have you ever been confused? Have you ever been bewildered? Then I commend to you the language of the psalm here. If you think about how we just sang a moment ago in and one of the most popular hymns of all time, uh, right? Come thou fountain of every blessing, right? We don't, God, we, don't, we, just, we don't just want blessing, we want the fountain. We want you, we want the source of blessing. And, and there's this phrase, it's poetic, and you, you might have kind of skipped over it. It says, tune my heart to sing thy praise. If you think of the Psalms as the way we tune our hearts to praise, then Psalm 44 might be a way that, or, or, or like a guide for you to understand even better how to respond to times of confusion and bewilderment. You see, Psalm 44 is the outcry of the innocent. Did you hear that in verse 17? All this has come upon us. These awful things have happened. Even though we know you have delivered our forefathers, you've been faithful in the past. We know we need to depend on you completely. We know you know everything that's happening, but This seems unfair. And so Psalm 44 is the outcry of the innocent who are tragically caught up in the punishment of the guilty. 
Now, if you think about the story of the Bible and how these psalms fit in somewhere to this story, one of the things as you study this psalm you'll find is that there's not a lot of agreement on where this fits into the story of the Bible. If you think about the story of God choosing out of the nations a people for himself to bless them, they turn against him, and then they're scattered among the nations to, to be exiled, and, and then even, even in their best sense to, to restore and rebuild, that seems to be a, a flawed attempt. And so whether, whether it was deliverance from captivity in Egypt to the promised land to, to even exile because of their unfaithfulness by rejecting God's promise as they lived in the promised land. We're not really sure where on that timeline it fits, and here's why. Because most of the prophetic literature you hear from the exile doesn't sound like this. It usually sounds something like, oh my, we're a mess. We've done awful things. And yet at the same time, it does use the language of being scattered in verse 11 among the nations. So it might be a later date, but it also might be an earlier date, something like the end of Second Chronicles. Though while they were experiencing God's blessing, they still experienced apparently some sort of military defeat. Either way, wherever you find yourself in the Old Testament, and I would even argue for this morning, wherever you find yourself, if you see and experience some confusion, Psalm 44 has language for us. It tunes our heart to cope with confusion and being confounded in the world. Confounded, as you see, even in the course of this particular psalm. At first, God's faithful. God, verse 1. We've heard with our own ears, our own forefathers have told us how you delivered them, how you cared for them. We know you to be faithful. Verse 4, you're the king. We know that you're the source. It was through you that we experienced victory. Verse 6, it's not in my own bow, right? It's not in my own sword. I'm not the source of salvation. God, you are. But in verse 9, but you, and then you hear Almost every single verse as it's translated, did you hear that word that shows up over and over and over again? You. You. You've rejected us. You've made us turn back. You've made us like sheep for the slaughter. You've sold your people for a trifle. You've made us the taunt of our neighbors. You've made us a byword among the nations. And yet, in verse 17, it seems that these people feel like it's unfair. It's unfair. We haven't abandoned you. Now, they're not making a, a, a case that they are completely and utterly sinless. That isn't the case. But it is as if to say, we're not guilty of this. And so the Psalms here, in this case, the 44th Psalm, give language for those of us who experience confusion. The inevitable confusion that comes with being confronted with the truth that there is a creator and a redeemer and a sustainer in the universe, and things in that universe really stink. It's confusing, isn't it? Now, as I said before, in one sense, be encouraged. That confusion is the right response. And God, in his mercy, has left psalms like this to comfort you and I, to remind us there are Questions that you and I will never be able to answer. After all, confusion will always be the result of trying to discern the mind and will of an infinite God. After all, if anyone came to you and was like, I know the mind of God. I know and have understood his omniscience. I know all that, I know all that the creator and redeemer and sustainer of the universe knows. Right? Well, at that point, you should worship that person because they are God. But recognize that confusion, bewilderment, is the natural and inevitable response to trying to discern the heart of God. 
Prophetic literature tells us this. My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. My ways are above your ways. Right? You can hear the Proverbs reminding us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in your own understanding. And so this bewildered psalm, this bewildered group of people is wrestling with the inevitable experience of knowing that there is a God who is true and faithful and just. And there is a world that is marred by and utterly scarred by sin. And so, if you're in this room, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You wouldn't say you're a believer in Jesus. I'm really grateful you're here. And I hope that these are the kinds of questions that you yourself are wrestling with. How can there be a good God if fill in the blank? How can we, how can we gather together and sing these upbeat songs about God's goodness given the fact that this last week I blank? went through and experienced this. Be encouraged. God is kind and good and leaves psalms like this to let you know you're not crazy. (laughs) This is the normal and right circumstance. To be in a sense of confusion and bewilderment given the dichotomy of a good and loving God and a broken world. And yet, on the other hand, we're invited to turn in some sense in this. So, let's just walk through these sections. I think there are five of them, and they teach us of what we, like how we speak, what we need to hear. I want to point out maybe a theme or two that stands out, and then a lens through which we can understand. First and foremost, in that first three verses, we need to hear that God has been faithful. Now, if you're a believer in this room, I would add words to that. I would say we regularly need to be reminded that God has been faithful. We, like the Israelites of the Old Testament, forget. Sometimes willfully forget. Sometimes willfully choose to hope in and trust in lesser things. But the first three verses give us language we need to hear. We need to hear that God has been faithful. There is a God that has not abandoned us. We've heard these stories. We recount. We, we understand the stories that have been passed on. That you, if you see verse 2 and 3, it's a picture of the deliverance from the captivity in Egypt to be handed the promised land. Not because they were particularly great and powerful people, but instead because God was merciful. God guided guided them into a land that was inhabited by people they couldn't naturally overpower. And they need to be reminded. God has been faithful. If I would invite you to and commend this kind of language, even for your own conversation going forward, regularly, right? You th- hear, hear Paul in the first, in telling the first Thessalonian church, or the first, there's no two, in, in to the, telling the Thessalonian church in his first letter to to do the will of God. You're like, what is the will of God? And he gives them three things, right? That we would pray continually, that you would, uh, that you would rejoice always, and that you would give thanks in all circumstances. So think of this as the, the rhythm and language of the faith, that we regularly recount how good God has been to us, how good God has been to us even when we don't deserve it. That God has been kind to us. So even personally, this is for us, think of this as like, this is why as, as members of Connection Church, we have what we call a story of grace that we want to walk you through writing and reciting. And that story is simply this, to recount how good God has been to us. Here is who Jesus is. Here is how marvelous he is. And here's how that story intersected with mine. 
that's a story of grace that we regularly tell, not just to one another. We sing, but even to the people who need to hear it, your neighbors, family members who are living without hope. You have a story. I don't know what it is. It's not the same as mine. I'll, I'll confess to you that regularly, and that this is just something that might help you, we regularly like envy the other person's story. We always think our story is lame, right? And this is a difficulty for some of you, even if you're walking through the membership process, and I would just say, in love and grace, get over yourself. If your story is lame, you're telling it about the wrong person. If your story's lame, it's because you're trying to tell it about you. But friend, when you stop for a minute and tell the story of Jesus, oh my goodness, that changes. That changes everything. I don't know what he saved you from, and I'm sure you wish it was something. I'm sure you wish your story was someone else's. But friend, for just a moment, look to him. We need to hear that God is the one who's been faithful. The story of the Bible, the story of redemption, I would even invite you to consider your own story of existence as a story of God's faithfulness. Now, maybe you haven't seen that yet. Maybe that hasn't reeled to you, but, but I'm here to convince you that it's possible your story is bigger and greater than you thought. You're caught up in another story. God has been faithful. We regularly recount the story even of Connection Church and other churches that have existed across history. That God would bless a handful of people who love him and want their neighbors and want the people around them to hear the good news of what he's done for them because God has been faithful. And we need to hear that. We need to be reminded of that. Tell stories. Recount stories of God's faithfulness. First and foremost, as we walk through the scripture, this is the story of God's faithfulness over generations. But even then, tell the stories about, right, about the great awakening, and the second great awakening. And if you don't know what that is, now you know what to Google this afternoon, right? Tell great stories of revival that have happened, that have gripped God's people throughout history, where people so radically wrapped up in the gospel risked their own life and even lost their life for it. Tell stories of how faithful God has been. Let that be, as I commend to you, the language you use. Here's in the second section, beginning in verse 4. We need to hear that we rely upon and boast in the Lord and not ourselves. Verse 8, in God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Now that comes at the end of that whole section where he says regularly, for, for example, in, in verse 6, in, not in my bow do I trust, and nor can my sword save me. I commend that to you. We regularly need to hear that relying upon ourselves, trusting and hoping in ourselves will be a frustrating endeavor. It will always end in failure. And we need to hear that we rely upon and boast in the Lord and not ourselves. That means, that I, hope, I hope graciously, but regularly, I have to like, even from here, even now, some of you are like, yeah, yeah, Jonathan, I'm going to do better this week. <laughs> like, no. No, that's the, no, you will do terribly, and that will be okay, because your boast will not be in you, it will be in the Lord, he will be faithful, he will, he was not, he will not be surprised by it, but we are regularly, aren't we, we are regularly tempted to think that we can fix the problems, we're regularly tempted to think that we can repair, and that's not new, the very first story of the Bible is a story of our, our spiritual and natural father and mother, Adam and Eve, and how they rebelled against God. And they were alienated from God, separated eternally and completely from God forever and ever. And do you know what they thought they could do to fix it? 
hey, let's get some fig leaves. Let's so, t- I, I, okay, the creator of the universe has now been separated from us. What do you think we should do? I think those leaves would probably fix it. You're right. Right, you get the idea? You're meant to laugh. You're meant to go like, that's absurd. How, how would fig leaves cover what's broken exist? Exactly. That's exactly the case. And we're tempted to think that we have these solutions that can solve what's eternally busted in the world and what's irreparably and eternally busted on our own hearts. And we are to rely on the Lord. It's not in our sword. It's not in our might. It's not in our own power. It's by the spirit and power of God. And we need to hear that. And you and I need me to be reminded of that. Even if I'm only just saying it so it bounces off the back wall and I hear it. Thank you for letting me do that. We need to hear in that third section. God is sovereign over everything. Now this is, this is where it gets weird. Even unjust suffering. Now we'll come back to this in a moment. This one tastes the most bitter. God is sovereign over everything. I, I think there's a, a powerful invitation. If nothing else, I would say to you, you can be honest with God. You can say things to God that maybe you wouldn't think you were allowed to say. Because the psalmist here accuses God. You've rejected us. You, like, you, holds God responsible for all these things. And I want, I want to invite you to experience comfort in this. God is not shocked by what you really think of him. Now, you can't accuse friends, right? When you accuse friends of wrongdoing, if you use me of failure or wrongdoing, I'm going to be indignant, right? Because I'm insecure. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know how I've failed. I don't want to know how things have gone wrong. I don't want to be like, I don't want my own character or existence impugned by that. Like, it's hard to accuse other people, but here's the good news. Our God is not insecure and frail like you or me. You can tell him whatever you want. He won't be shocked by it. He will have overwhelming grace ready and available for you. This might be the most helpful thing for you as we walk through the Psalms. I know it has been for me. You can lament. You can grieve. You can cry out to God, God, if you don't fix this, it won't be fixed. Just think about the fact that God inspired this text to be here. Right? Like, I wouldn't do that. If I inspired a text about me, I wouldn't put any parts of it that made me look bad. And yet, look what God is doing here in this psalm. He's inviting us to hear that he's sovereign over everything, not just suffering, but even unjust suffering. He has plans that are above our plans, and it's okay if you complain to him. Not only is it okay, it is an act of worship. Now, I'll say this with a caveat. There's a difference between crying out to God and crying out against God. Now, I know in our own heart, that line is probably blurry. And all I would tell you is, go to him, cry out to him. And if you start crying out against him sinfully, guess what he'll do? He'll remind you. And by the power of his spirit, he'll offer you all the grace you need. That's how good and kind he is. He can take it. He's sovereign over all things. He's not shocked by what's happened in the world. In many ways, this is the language of prayer in which we, we realize that the purpose, at least one of the purposes of prayer and worship isn't that we would tell God things that he doesn't know, that we would somehow tell God instead things that we don't really know. Be reminded. He can take it. 
The next section you see is another thing I think this psalm helps us to realize that we need to hear that the Lord knows all things, including the secrets of the heart. Now he says, like, we haven't forgotten you. We haven't, in this sense, we haven't done anything egregious that we, we believe would bring about this victory or this, this defeat. We haven't done anything that we think deserves this. Because after all, he says in verse 20 and 21 and 22, if we were to do that, if we were to harbor some sort of idolatry, some sort of trust in lesser things, verse 21, you know the secrets of the heart. And so you can cry out to God. You can look to God. He knows the secrets of the heart. He knows all things. He understands all things. Uh, one of the, probably the most powerful powerful realizations that I, I come upon, and you might as well, is that the Lord understands me more than I understand myself. And sometimes even as, as the, even if I'm not praying out loud, like the thoughts as they come to my mind are a powerful experience of like, oh, that's what that's like. Or, oh, I, now I see. You, you get the idea, man, I'm, I'm inviting you into, uh, hopefully, that you would hear that the Lord knows the state of your heart. Don't hide it from him. Now, these people, on one hand, cry that they're innocent of a particular thing. So, let me give you two sides of this. On one hand, this is not true, right? On one hand, we're meant to see that, like, okay, no one's that innocent. No one's, re right? We, 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 uh, the book of Romans tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In that sense, on one side of the coin, I would commend to you that you and I, because of our sin, because we, we love ourselves and worship ourselves and lesser things, we live in disorder of how God created us to thrive, you and I, as a result of those things, deserve hell. Everything we get instead of hell is a gift. Now, even if I'm only speaking for me, even if you're like, I don't, fine, good luck, right? But the things I know I've done, the thoughts that I know I've entertained, the things that I've done that, that rebel against God, that the ways that I want to live as God. I mean, think about it. We, we've come up against the holy and just and perfect God and said, I know better. I could do this better than you. Why, why would he keep us around? And so, friend, you and I, as we rebel against a holy and just God, deserve hell. Everything else is a gift. Every breath is a mercy. It's a grace. But on the other hand, sometimes we experience suffering that, like the psalmist here, I, I may not be perfectly innocent, right? But on the other hand, I'm not guilty of that. Ever been there? I, I may not be perfectly innocent, but I didn't sign up for this. I don't deserve that. You get the idea? Have you ever felt those words come out of your own mouth? And now they're not making a cry to absolute innocence. They're just saying something's happened here that seems unfair. And then you see how I introduced it. You see the outcry of the innocent for being caught up in the punishment of the guilty. We need to be reminded that the Lord knows the secrets of the heart. The Lord knows the things for which you are genuinely guilty and ought to be held to account. And the Lord knows the things that have happened to you that were not your fault. And you can trust him with both of those things. You can trust him. And thankfully, he'll respond with mercy and grace for the things that 
ultimately should lead to your demise. And he'll either, as an act of vengeance and justice, he will either wipe out the aggressor or he will display his grace and mercy on the aggressor. But you can trust the Lord with this. He knows the duplicitous nature of our own heart, that we are on one hand not at all completely innocent, but there are some things that happen that are simply unfair. I think about it even in my own life. I think about uh, when, I, when I meet with couples to prepare them for marriage, I think about even like my own sin that I've drug into my own marriage that my wife did not ask for, she did not sign up for. It was not fair. And I know many of you have experienced that same feeling of betrayal against a spouse for that very thing. I'm not, I'm not perfectly innocent, but I don't deserve this. And I want you to hear the Lord knows the very cries of your heart. The Lord knows. The last section, we need to hear that the Lord helps according to his steadfast love. That very last section is a, a really powerful cry out to God. God, wake up. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? And remember what I told you? You kind of hear a call back to like, you can't tell a person that. We'll, we'll answer indignantly. But apparently you can talk to God this way because God is happy, on his time at least, to redeem. He is happy to awake and to restore. But notice the, 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 the very ending of this psalm is, is the, the author saying, God, you have got to do something. You have got to fix this. If you don't wake up, if you continue to hide your face, if you don't address our affliction and our oppression, if you don't address the fact that, I love that language that it says we're bowed down into the dust, our belly clings to the ground. You get the language of the curse of the garden that's spoken over the serpent that betrayed and, and rebelled against God and led other people into rebellion. You get the same picture of like, God, we're living cursed. Have you ever felt that way? Like, at any given moment, you're under a curse that will just rip the rug out from underneath you. That's how this psalmist felt. Like, look, if you don't do something, we're going to live as though we are continually cursed. We're going to be like the serpent clinging to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us. You're the language of ransom. Set us free. Make this right for the sake of your steadfast love. That's last, that last little phrase is pretty powerful, isn't it? Because after all, you could ask for help. Hey, help me, you know, bail me out so that I won't look bad, right? God, help me so that this doesn't go badly for me. But notice what he puts on the end of this that I commend to you. The Lord helps according to his steadfast love. And I'm going to commend the language of, uh, of these last four verses, crying out to God, not for just our own sake, but for his Think about the faith that's demonstrated here to say, God, redeem me, not just for my own benefit, but redeem me so that your name would be great. Redeem me so that your steadfast love, which is truly glorious, which is truly dependable, would be known, would be seen. Wake up, Lord. Redeem us so that your love and your mercy is manifest to everyone. So let me give you a couple of things that I think will be helpful. First is a theme that stands out that I'll draw out just briefly here, and then two lenses through which we can read this psalm and begin to incorporate this kind of language into our own lives. The first theme that I just want to point out here as an aside, there are many themes here, 
but the theme of the nations. If you look closely here, the Psalms do this regularly, but in this particular Psalm, verse 2, verse 11, and verse 14 all mention the nations. The language of the nations is throughout the entirety of the Psalms. They're found in so many of them. And that is meant to be something for us as we think about tuning our hearts to praise, something that the life of faith demands that we always see ourselves in light of the nations. Let me give you a crash course. The story of the Bible is how God created all things perfect for a people that rebelled against him. And then as a result of their rebellion, they're scattered from his presence, not as a unified people and family, but a family that's scattered and broken by sin that becomes a scattering of nations. And yet, God didn't give up on them. God called a man by the name of Abram out of the nations, right? Think of this, the first Jew was a Gentile. The the first gathered one was a scattered one. And God called Abram out of the nations and said, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless you so amazingly that it's going to bless the entire nations. The nations will be blessed for how I'm going to bless you. So he calls out of the nation a one so that he would bless them through the nations. He begins to build that nation that has its peaks and valleys of, of great kings like David and Solomon, but ultimately they scatter and reject God and, and end up getting absorbed in and loving the gods of the nations, such that God's vengeance and wrath to demonstrate his faithfulness and justice is to scatter them, to exile them is the language throughout the nations. And they make some attempts to reclaim that, that feeling of that they're out of the nations. They're always in relationship to the nations until Jesus comes. And Jesus comes and says, I'm coming to bless all the nations. And he even tells his disciples, you have this good news of what I've done to redeem the nations. Go and make disciples of the nations. And the first powerful act of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost is that tongues of fire come down and, and rain upon these people. And I would say, I don't even know the words that describe what it is that happened. Tongues of fire like descended upon these people and they started to speak the gospel, the good news, the works of God, his faithfulness in what? Multiple languages. So that the nations, the nations would hear. And then the book of Acts tells us how that gospel plants churches all throughout the known world, even to the ends of the world, which at that, that, which at that point would have been Rome, to the nations, such that at the very end, Roman, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 5, at the very end of all recorded history, at the end of all things, around the throne of the Lamb, there is a song that we sang earlier and we will sing forever and ever. Glory, glory, glory. This idea that holy is the, the Lamb, the one who was ransomed for himself, people from every tribe, tongue, and language. So this psalm helps teach us to think about the nations. So if you're in this room, maybe you're not a believer, uh, our goal is to, on one hand, make you feel like an outsider so that we can make you feel like an insider. Here's what I mean by that. At one point in time, all of us who would call ourselves Christians were not and we were running from and rebelling against God. We were the nations. We were the ones. We were the, we were the scattered ones. And by God's grace, he has called us to himself in Christ. So recognize the theme. As we worship, we're always thinking about, reflecting upon how God has rescued us from being scattered and invited us on the great mission that he started of blessing the entirety of the nations. Psalm 18 says it this way, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing your name. Psalm 22, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. 
Psalm 45, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Psalm 46. Now, this, is, this makes a really great coffee cup if you take it out of context. Your grandma might have knitted this. I just hope she knitted the whole context. Be still and know that I am God. That's usually like a feel better, right? Oh, right. Which is good. I hope God has comforted you in that. But look at it in context. Be still and know that I am God. Why? For what purpose? I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The glory of God given to even those who are bewildered is too great to keep a secret. It will be shared by the nations. Now, look at the lens through which we can read this psalm. I think there's two things. One is in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 one of the most powerful chapters in the entirety of the Bible. One day when I get up the courage, we're going to preach the book of Romans. I'm just not up for that right now. Uh, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how I would do it and not take 10 years and even, and then at the end of the 10 years, like, man, we did that really badly. Let's do it again. <laughs> this time we'll take 20 years. We're going to get it right. Jesus come back before that happens, right? But one of the most powerful chapters in the entirety of the Bible is in Romans chapter 8, a picture of people experiencing the adoption of God, uh, people experiencing the powerful work of God, people experiencing suffering even. And Romans 8 says it this way, and the Apostle Paul, to comfort them, reminds them, in light of all of these things they've experienced, suffering, adoption, inheritance, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can you hear the language at the end of Psalm 44, right? Redeem us for the sake of what? Your steadfast love. And so Paul is like talking to these people who are experiencing the same kind of confusion I asked you about at the beginning. Have you ever felt bewildered? Have you ever felt confused? This is who Paul's talking to, people who are confused. Like, how is this possible? How? He, he describes there's a groaning in creation, like childbirth. There's something difficult and painful happening. But in all of this, he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. And then he quotes Psalm 44, for as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So look at the way that Paul wants us to read this. Do you experience confusion and bewilderment? Is the world difficult? Does it seem awful? Does it seem impossible to reconcile that there is a good God and yet all of these things that are happening? Is it possible that God's love for us is not real? Is it possible that there is something that could separate us from the love of God in Christ? And this is how he starts the next verse. No. 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 In all these things. Now, you might forget it, so let's go back to those, all those things. Remember, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? Off the top of my head, can, can I just add a few things that would help us read this psalm? Can Joe Biden or Donald Trump separate us from the love of God in Christ? Can a global pandemic, can a recession or inflation Let me get very personal. Can old age? Can dementia? 
Can Alzheimer's? Can a miscarriage? Can divorce and unfaithfulness? Can cancer separate us from the love of God and Christ? No. 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 In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him, and you hear that call back again, who loved us. Are you confused? Are you bewildered by any one of these things? Friend, on one hand, you're seeing clearly. Thank you. I'd hate for you to ignore how awful these things really are. And those are just the ones off the top of my head. I know that you could add to that list. I'm certain you could. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers. I don't know what was on your list. Did you have angels? Right? Like, Paul's like, in case you're worried, in case you're worried that an angel might rob you of joy and hope in existence. He's like, no. Nor things present, nor things to come. That's really good for some of you who are really professional worriers. There is nothing that is to come. No powers, nor height, nor depth. I don't know. Again, now he's just getting fun, right? I'm afraid of heights. Don't worry about it. Nor height, nor depth. But he's talking existentially, spiritually, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So friend, be reminded, you can call out to God in your bewilderment and confusion, knowing that he hears, and there is nothing that is currently confusing you. Nothing. Nothing. Not a single one of those things that will separate you from God and his presence in Christ. Friend, your confusion does not get the last word. And here's the last way I would say it. If we read Psalm 44 through the lens of of Paul's words to the Romans and even to us Christians in Romans 8, we can also read Psalm 44 through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Remember what I told you this psalm is ultimately about? It's the outcry of the innocent for being caught up in the punishment of the guilty. The outcry of the innocent, bewildered by being caught up into the punishment of the guilty. That's confusing. It's disorienting. It's bewildering when you experience it yourself. But the very bewildering nature of life, but also the bewildering, bewildering nature of of the psalms here, and the psalmist as they experience it, point to the highness and mysteriousness of God's love for us in Christ. The confounding work of God on our behalf. Look at the mystery of the gospel in this psalm. Notice what it's asking. It points to something that's confounding. That God would afflict the innocent rather than the guilty. That's what's being accused. God, this is confounding. You are afflicting punishment on the innocent and not the guilty. And part of us who are justice-minded are like, that's awful, that's, that's terrible. But those of us who have encountered our own sin, don't run from the mystery of this psalm so fast that God would afflict the innocent rather than the guilty. Don't run from it. What the psalmist finds to be bewildering is a new category that God would willingly afflict the innocent rather than the guilty. 
Our confusion about this is his glory. Think of it this way. The psalmist looks at his circumstances and says, God, isn't it bizarre that you would afflict the innocent like a lamb and not punish the guilty? Isn't that bizarre and confounding? And it's the psalmist yelling out, God, you're afflicting the innocent and not the guilty. You're afflicting the innocent and not the guilty. And for those of us who have encountered Christ, we say the same psalm, but we have a different tone. God, you have afflicted the innocent and you have not punished the guilty. You have afflicted the innocent one, the perfect and righteous son of God, Jesus who cries out even from the cross in Psalm 22, quoting it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The truly and perfectly innocent one, afflicted, what? Among the guilty. Our confusion, our bewilderment is his glory. The Lord gloriously and confoundingly delights to take the blame for things that he did not do. So friend, pray, cry out to God. I don't know, maybe even blame him for some things that he did not do. Do you want to hear the good news? We serve and worship a God who delights to take the blame for things that he did not do. Who himself walked a perfect and sinless life, but took the blame and wrath and punishment that you and I and our sin deserve. For the joy set before him carried it to the cross, despising its shame, and was resurrected on the third day. I mean, isn't there, isn't there a an amazing answer to the prayer of the psalm here from the sons of Korah. Arise, wake up. We serve and love a God who didn't stay asleep in the front of the boat during the storm that would kill his disciples. And so also we serve and love a God who did not stay dead in the tomb, but on the third day was raised to remind us of the power of God, the gloriously, confoundingly power, uh, powerful God who is delighting in taking the place of the guilty. Recount it. He's redeemed us. Revel in it. He's our only hope. Admit it. This stuff in this world stinks. Are you confused and bewildered today? Would you take hope in the possibility that your confusion and bewilderment points to a greater mystery of a God who takes suffering and death and uses them as a prop in his play? And the suffering that you now experience, the unfairness that you see and sense in the world will not be wasted. In just a moment here, we're going to sing a song. I'll skip to the lyrics if I can. I don't know if I can. Um, we're going to get to the, a, a, a song here. I, I don't want you to miss it. We're going to sing about the, the goodness of Christ. And uh, sorry for this is last minute because I just thought of it. And I, I should have thought ahead. But well, I'm new to this. I haven't preached in six weeks. So... So I don't run lyrics. People are just better at me than, than I am. I should skip it. In a minute here, we're going to sing, and there's a verse, and, and you're going to hear it. We sing it, Christ is all in all. But one of the things we're going to sing is that our pain is not wasted. Our pain is not wasted. The suffering and confounding things that you experience are not a waste. Your confusion and bewilderment will not get the last word. Any more than death, hell, suffering, and sin got the last word over Jesus. God has awoken. Jesus, the truly innocent one, did not stay asleep, but awoke and resurrected. 
Jesus, the truly powerfully innocent one, does not waste his suffering, but he does it on the behalf of the guilty so that you and I will know that our pain and suffering is not an accident. It's a prop and a glorious play that though while in the moment it is bewildering, will one day be the source and lyrics of a song that we will sing to glorify God of what he's done to redeem us. Let's pray and let's thank God for that very thing. Uh, Jesus, thank you so much that you, uh, you have not abandoned us, you have not left us. Thank you that this encouraging psalm uh, encouraging in that we are invited to lament and grieve, gives us language and categories for our distress. I pray that even now that would help for some in the room that are confused and suffering and, 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 and even suffering through no fault of their own. Might today they feel warmed and comforted by the thought that you are not, you are not shocked by this and you have invited them. You've even given them a script on how to come to you. I pray that you would give them comfort as they do that. Allow some in this room to say things to you they've never said before. Allow some in this room to experience the comfort and grace of knowing that there is a God who will not leave us or forsake us, but knows every experience, even the experience of those who have suffered unjustly. But thank you, Lord, that that unjust suffering does not get the last word. It seems like it does. It's loud. It's confusing and confounding. But thank you that you, through the mystery of the gospel, take what's foolish in the world and shamed the wise with it. In this case, you've taken a purely and perfectly innocent one who was caught up in the punishment of the guilty to bring glory to your name and bring redemption to your people. Maybe for some of us, this will be the first time we've heard that and thought of that and looked to it in trust. Give us the eyes of faith that we would see the difficulty in our own life and the difficulty in the world as an invitation to trust and experience comfort in Christ. Thank you that you have awoken Thank you that you have come, you have served, you have perfectly obeyed the Father, and even though you were counted among the guilty, you did so to ransom them and to redeem them for the sake of your steadfast love. And thank you now that there is nothing, nothing that we can even imagine that could separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. There is nothing that can take away our treasure and hope that is Christ. He's ours. He belongs to us and we get to enjoy him forever. Now help us to rejoice in that as we sing. Amen.